Mic check, one, two, one, two. Hello out there. Um, this is Keith um, of I Pray This Helps. You are listening to I Pray This Helps. I also host a show called Thank God for the Group Chat. I am the founder and creator of all things considered um, in regards to Fresh Air Media, which will ultimately become Roberson Creative Media Company very, very soon. Um, it's been a long time since we spoke. It's probably been even longer since you heard my voice. Well, no, that doesn't make any sense. It's been a long time since you heard <laughs> since you heard my voice. It's been a couple of months. We've been doing a lot of things on the on the back end. We've been doing a lot of things behind the scenes. And there's just been a lot happening. Life has been taking place. And I wouldn't say we've been rolling with the punches, but life has been happening and we've been happening to life. And so um, I kind of want to get the ball rolling again with the things that we've been doing and um, make sure that we remain a constant presence or, you know, or a visual presence in you guys' life. I am aware that you guys, and when I say you guys, I mean our audience, enjoy listening to us. You enjoy um, us and the content that we have, and that's not lost on me. I am very appreciative of that, and um, I don't take that for granted, not at, not at all. And so, you know, we've been buying equipment, making sure that everything is on the up and up, and we've been making moves. If you haven't noticed, um, we've still been producing things. Um, mainly, uh, we've been producing um, a show for, uh, well, not a show, but we've been producing sermons for um, Pastor Roberson, who is my father. Just so happens to be my dad. We've been doing his sermons each and every week, so you could catch those on YouTube. Just search Keith Roberson, and I'm sure something will pop up. Right now, he's in a series called The Voice of God in the Earth, and that's been um, a great thing to be a part of. Um, yeah, and just life is happening. Um, but I, I assure you that we have not forgotten about you guys. And in the hiatus, a large part of it has been because we want to make sure that what we're doing is done with great quality whether it be the things that we're talking about whether it be you know just our spirit in general whether you know i mean like we just got to make sure that you know we're putting our best foot forward and so um but it's time it's time to get back it's time to get back into the mode of things and to provide you guys with even more content i am not through with our mere christianity series i'm and of course i'm just walking you through the book if the book has blessed you please let us know um if you've gotten the book because of what i've been reading please let us know and that is what we'll be reading today i'll be reading um chapter five of book two um the practical conclusion and um yeah we'll go from there it's it's good to be back i'm glad that you're listening and we really appreciate you this is i pray this helps and i am keith roberson
Practical Conclusion, Chapter 5 The perfect surrender and humiliation were undergone by Christ. Perfect because he was God. Surrender and humiliation because he was man. Now the Christian belief is that if we somehow share the humility and suffering of Christ, we shall also share in his conquest of death and find a new life after we have died and in it become perfect and perfectly happy creatures. This means something much more than our trying to follow his teaching. People often ask when the next step in evolution, the step to something beyond man, will happen. But in the Christian view, it has happened already. In Christ, a new kind of man appeared, and a new kind of life which began in him is to be put into us. How is this to be done? Now, please remember how we acquired the old, ordinary kind of life. We, d we derived it from others, from our father and mother and all our ancestors, without our consent. And by a very curious process involving pleasure, pain, and danger. A process you would never have guessed. Most of us spend a good many years in childhood trying to guess it. And some children, when they are first told, do not believe it. And I am not sure that I blame them, for it is very odd. Now the God who arranged that process is the same God who arranges how the new kind of life, the Christian life, is to be spread. The Christ life is to be spread. We must be prepared for it being odd too. He did not consult us when he invented sex. He has not consulted us either when he invented this. There are three things that spread the Christ life to us. Baptism, belief, and that mysterious action which different Christians call by different names, Holy Communion, the Mass, the Lord's Supper. At least those are the three ordinary methods. I'm not saying there are there may not be special cases where it is spread without one or more of these. I have not time to go into special cases, and I do not know enough. If, you're, if you are trying in a few minutes to tell a man how to get to Edinburgh, you will tell him the trains. He can, it is true, get there by boat or by plane, but you will hardly bring that in. And I am not saying anything about which of these three things is the most essential. My Methodist friend would like me to say more about belief and less in proportion about the other two. But I am not going into that. Anyone who professes to teach you Christian doctrine will, in fact, tell you to use all three. And that is enough for our present purpose. I cannot myself see why these things should be the conductors of the new kind of life. But then, if one did not happen to know, I should never have seen any connection between the particular physical pleasure and the appearance of a new human being in the world. We have to take reality as it comes to us. There is no good jabbering about what it ought to be like or what we should have expected it to be like. But though I cannot see why it should be so, I can tell you why I believe it is so. I have explained why I have to believe that Jesus was and is God. 
And it seems plain as a matter of history that he taught his followers that the new life was communicated in this way. In other words, I believe it on his authority. Do not be scared by the word authority. Believing things on authority only means bringing them because you have been told them by someone you think trustworthy. 99% of the things you believe are believed on authority. I believe there is such a place as New York. I have not seen it myself. I could not prove by abstract reasoning that there must be such a place. I believe it because reasonable people have told me so. The ordinary man believes in the solar system, atoms, evolution, and the circulation of the blood on authority because the scientists say so. Even historical statement in the world, every historical statement in the world is believed on authority. None of us has seen the Norman conquest or the defeat of the Armada. None of us could prove them by pure logic as you prove a thing in mathematics. We believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about them. In fact, on authority. A man who jibbed at authority and other things as, as some people do in religion would have to be content to know nothing all his life. Do not think I am setting up baptism and belief in the Holy Communion as things that will do instead of your own attempts to copy Christ. Your natural life is derived from your parents. That does not mean it will stay there if you do nothing about it. You can lose it by neglect, or you can drive it away by committing suicide. You have to feed it and look after it, but always remember you are not making it. You are only keeping up a life you got from someone else. In the same way, a Christian can lose the Christ life which has been put into him, and he has to make efforts to keep it. But even the best Christian that ever lived is not acting on his own steam. He is only nourishing or protecting a life he could never have acquired by his own efforts. And that has practical consequences. As long as the natural life is in your body, it will do a lot towards repairing that body. Cut it, and up to a point it will heal, as a dead body would not. A live body is not one that never gets hurt but one that can, to some extent, repair itself. In the same way, a Christian is not a man who never goes wrong, but a man who is enabled to repent and pick himself up and begin over again after each stumble, because the Christ life is inside him, repairing him all the time, enabling him to repent, in some degree, the kind of voluntary death which Christ himself carried out. That is why the Christian is in a good and indifferent position from other people who are trying to do good or be good. They hope by being good to please God if there is one or if they think there is not, at least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside him. He does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it is bright, 
but some but becomes bright because the sun shines on it. And let me make it quite clear that when Christians say the Christ life is in them, they do not mean simply something mental or moral. When they speak of being in Christ or of Christ being in them, this is not simply a way of saying that they are thinking about Christ or copying him. They mean that Christ is actually operating through them. That the whole mass of Christians are the physical organism through which Christ acts. That we are his fingers and muscles, the cells of his body. And perhaps that explains one or two things. It explains why this new life is spread not only by purely mental acts like belief, but by bodily acts like baptism and Holy Communion. It is not merely the spreading of an idea. It is more like evolution, a biological or super biological fact. There is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. Here is another thing that used to puzzle me. It is not frightfully unfair that this new life should be confined to people who have heard of Christ and been able to believe in him. But the truth is, God has not told us what his arrangements about the other people are. We do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. But in the meantime, if you are worried about the people outside, the most unreasonable thing you can do is to remain outside yourself. Christians are Christ's body, the organism through which he works. Every addition to that body enables him to do more. If you want to help those outside, you must add your own little cell to the body of Christ, who alone can help them. Cutting off a man's fingers would be an odd way of getting him to do more work. Another possible objection to this. Why is God landing in this enemy-occupied world in disguise and starting a sort of secret society to undermine the devil? Why is he not landing in force, invading it? Is it that he is not strong enough? Well, Christians think he is going to land in force. We do not know when, but we can guess why he is delaying. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. I do not suppose you and I would have thought much of a Frenchman who waited till the Allies were marching into Germany and then announced he was on our side. God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right. But what is the good of saying you are on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive? 
comes crashing in something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God out without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we, re we realized it before or not. Now today, this moment, is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. We must take it or leave it. That concludes book two in chapter five. Um, straight away, we will be reading book three and we'll, we'll be starting book three, um, Christian Behavior. We'll be right back. Book three. Book three. Christian behavior. Chapter one. The three parts of morality. There is a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. He replied that as far as he can make out, God was the sort of person who is always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. And I am afraid that that is the sort of idea that the word morality raises in a good many people's minds. Something that interferes, something that stops you having a good time. In reality, Moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or a friction in the running of that machine. That is why these rules at first seem to be constantly interfering with our natural inclinations. When you are being taught how to use any machine, the instructor keeps on saying, no, don't do it like that. Because, of course, there are all sorts of things that look all right and seem to you the natural way of treating the machine, but do not really work. Some people prefer to talk about moral ideas rather than moral rules and about moral idealisms rather than moral obedience. Now, it is, of course, quite true that moral perfection Now, it is, of course, quite true that moral perfection is an ideal in the sense that we cannot achieve it. In that sense, every kind of perfection is, for us humans, an ideal. We cannot succeed in being perfect car drivers or perfect tennis players or in drawing perfectly straight lines. But there is another sense in which it is very misleading to call moral perfection 
an ideal. When a man says that a certain woman or house or ship or garden is his ideal, he does not mean, unless he is rather a fool, that everyone else ought to have the same ideal. In such matters, we are entitled to have different tastes and therefore different ideals. But it is dangerous to describe a man who tries very hard to keep the moral law as a man of high ideals, because this might lead you to think that moral perfection was a private taste of his own and that the rest of us were not called on to share it. This would be a disastrous mistake. Perfect behavior may be as unattainable as perfect gear changing when we drive. But it is a necessary ideal prescribed for all men by the very nature of the human machine, just as perfect gear changing is an ideal prescribed for all drivers by the very nature of cars. And it would be even more dangerous to think of oneself as a person of high ideals because one is trying to tell no lies at all instead of only a few lies or never to commit adultery instead of committing it only seldom or not to be a bully instead of being only a moderate bully. It might lead you to become a prig and to think you were rather a special person who deserved to be congratulated on his idealism. In reality, you might just as well expect to be congratulated because whenever you do a sum, you try to get it quite right. To be sure, perfect arithmetic is an ideal. You will certainly make some mistakes in some calculations, but there is nothing very fine about trying to be quite accurate at each step in each sum. It would be idiotic not to try, for every mistake is going to cause you trouble later on. In the same way, every moral failure is going to cause trouble, probably to others and certainly to yourself. By talking about rules and obedience instead of ideals and idealism, we help to remind ourselves of these facts. Now let's go on a step further. There are two ways in which the human machine goes wrong. One is when human idealism and, and human individuals drift apart from one another or else collide with one another and do one another damage by cheating or bullying. The other is when things go wrong inside the individual, when the different parts of him, his different faculties and desires and so on, either drift apart or interfere with one another. You can get the idea plain if you think of us as a fleet of ships sailing in formation. The voyage will be a success only in the first place if the ships do not collide and get in one another's way. And secondly, if each ship is seaworthy and has her engines in good order. As a matter of fact, you cannot have either of these two things without the other. If the ships keep on having collisions, they will not remain seaworthy very long. On the other hand, if their steering gears are out of order, they will not be able to avoid collisions. Or if you like, think of humanity as a band playing a tune. To get a good result, you need two things. Each player's individual instrument must be in tune, and also each must come in at the right moment so as to combine with all the others. But there is one thing we have not yet taken into account. 
We have not asked where the fleet is trying to get to or what piece of music the band is trying to play. The instruments might be all in tune and might all come in at the right moment. But even so, the performance would not be a success if they had been engaged to provide dance music and actually played nothing but dead marches. And however well the fleet sailed, and however well the fleet sailed, his voyage would be a failure if it were meant to reach New York and actually arrived at Calcutta. Morality, then, seems to be concerned with three things. Firstly, with fair play and harmony being in between individuals. Secondly, with what might be called tidying up or, harmoni or harmonizing the things inside each individual. Thirdly, with the general purpose of human life as a whole, what man was made for, what course of the whole fleet ought to be on, what tune the conductor of the band wants it to play. You may have noticed that modern people are nearly always thinking about the first thing and forgetting the other two. When people say in the newspapers that we are striving for Christian moral standards, they usually mean that we are striving for kindness and fair play between nations and classes and individuals. That is, they are thinking only of the first thing. When a man says about something he wants to do, it can't be wrong because it doesn't do anyone else any harm. He is thinking only of the first thing. He is thinking it does not matter what his ship is like inside providing, provided that he does not run into the next ship. And it is quite natural when we start thinking about morality to begin with the first thing, with social relations. For one thing, the results of bad morality in that sphere are so obvious and press on us every day. War and poverty and graft and lies and shoddy work. And also, as long as you stick to the first thing, there is very little disagreement about morality. Almost all people at all times have agreed, in theory, that human beings ought to be honest and kind and hopeful to one another. But though it is natural to begin with all that, if our thinking about morality stops there, we might just as well not have thought at all. Unless we go on the second thing. The tidying up each inside each human being. We are only deceiving ourselves. What is the good of telling the ships how to steer so to avoid collisions if, in fact, they are such crazy old tubs that they cannot be steered at all? What is the good of drawing up on paper rules for social behavior if we know that, in fact, our greed, cowardice, ill-temper, and self-conceit are going to prevent us from keeping them. I do not mean for a moment that we ought not to think and think hard about improvements in our social and economic system. What I do mean is that all that thinking will be mere moonshine unless we realize that nothing but the courage and unselfishness of individuals is ever going to make any system worth prop work properly. It is easy enough to remove the particular kinds of graft or bullying that go on under the present system. But as long as men are twisters or bullies, they will find some new way of carrying on the old game under the new system. 
You cannot make men good by law. And without good men, you cannot have a good society. That is why we must go on to think of the second thing, of morality inside the individual. But I do not think we can stop there either. We are now getting to the point at which different beliefs about the universe lead to different behavior. And it would seem, at first sight, very sensible to stop before we got there and just carry on with those parts of morality that all sensible people agree about. But can we? Remember that religion involves a series of statements about facts which must either be true or false. If they are true, one set of conclusions will follow about the right sailing of the human fleet. If they are false, quite a different set. For example, let us go back to the man who says a thing cannot be wrong unless it hurts some other human being. He quite understands that he must not damage the other ships in the convoy, but he honestly thinks that what he does to his own ship is simply his own business. But does it not make a great difference whether his ship is his own property or not? Does it not make a great difference whether I am, so to speak, the landlord of my own mind and body or only a tenant responsible to the real landlord? If somebody else made me for his own purposes, then I shall have a lot of duties which I should not have if I simply belong to myself. Again, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And this must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years, but which, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. And morality makes this other difference, which by the by has a connection with the difference between totalitarianism and democracy. Forgive me. If individuals live only 70 years, then a state or a nation or a civilization which may last for a thousand years it is more important than an individual. But if Christianity is true, then the individual is not only more important, but incom incomparably more important, for he is everlasting, and the life of, of a state or a civilization compared with his is only a moment. It seems then that if we are to think about morality, we must think of all three departments, relations between man and man, things inside each man, and relations between man and the power that made him. We can all cooperate in the first one. Disagreements begin with the second and become more serious with the third. It is dealing with the third that the main differences between Christian and non-Christian morality come out. For the rest of this book, I am going to assume the Christian point of view and look at the whole picture as it will be if Christianity is true.
Father God, we thank you for, um, again, as although this is not scripture, um, it points to the scripture and, um, more importantly, it points to you. And we know that you are the word, you are the scripture. So Lord God, um, we thank you for this reading. We thank you for what you have put inside C.S. Lewis. We pray for understanding and we pray for inaction. We pray for, um, us to live life as Christians and not just be um, understand these, these major understanding people of and knowledgeable people and theologians, but actually people that live it out, actual Christians living out, not this book per se, but your word, your word itself. Lord, we love you. We praise you and we thank you and we pray and that you would bless everyone that is under the sound of my voice listening to this broadcast in jesus name we pray amen guys thank you so much for um being here with me today or whenever you're reading this or or listening to this rather um yeah i pray that this blesses you and that it continues to bless you if this is your first time listening to this and you're listening to this newest episode i implore you to go back and start from the very beginning of of this series at least um and uh there's great things to come for um fresh air media which i'm telling you now will become rcm co very soon um yeah, and let me give a benediction. I've been giving a benediction a lot with um, my believing friends, and it really has been blessing them. Um, just benediction is something as simple as, you know, a blessing as you depart, you know. Um, so now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy, the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Be blessed.